Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we come to you, and you promise where two or three are gathered, you are there in their midst, and so we trust that you are here with us, and we ask, not that we just think about your presence, but that your presence would be made known in power, that your spirit would attend your word, that there would be a a recognition of the reality of your presence and an experience of that reality here. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that desire and long for and love the truth that we would walk in it and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Mark chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to read, starting in verse 21, to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their, syn- in, in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have, you, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were questioning among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him to him all who were sick were oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out into a desolate place, and there he prayed. Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him, and and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, And said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. If you were to ask somebody down the street in the average church in America, what what was Jesus famous for? I think um, I get a lot of different answers. What was he famous for? Mark chapter 1 here is addressing what Jesus was famous for. All right, if you notice it, it comes up several times. Verse 28, his, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Down in verse uh, 33, the whole city, everyone was gathered around. They all wanted to go to the door where Jesus was because they had heard of him. They had seen what he had done. Verse 37, everyone's looking for you. 
Verse 45, they went out, began to, he began to speak freely and spread the news about what Jesus had done for him, and people were coming from, to him from every quarter. In, some, in a lot of ways, Mark feels like you're reading a newspaper at times. It's giving the report. It's spreading the news. This is who Jesus is. It's saying he's famous, and he's telling us what he's famous for. That's what news, newspapers do. They say, here's someone's rising in prominence, and let me tell you about them. That's what's happening here. And if I could give a headline for these opening, the opening ministry of Jesus, it would be this. The fame of Jesus spreads in Galilee as his, as his authority is on display. His fame is spreading throughout Galilee as his authority is on display. Because that's really in these opening verses, in the opening season of his ministry, he's famous for his authority. That's what Mark is driving at here. He's famous for his authority. So we're going to look at the four ways in which we see Jesus' authority on display. Number one, Jesus' authority as a teacher. Jesus' authority as a teacher. So you open up in verse 21 in that first section there, on the shores of Galilee and the city of Capernaum. All right, this is an important city, a successful fishing village on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's here that Jesus has revealed himself. He calls his first disciples out of this city. And he begins to teach in a synagogue, and it says he teaches with authority. That's the emphasis given. Verse 22 is one who had authority. And then in verse 37, 27, a new teaching with authority. Now again, Jesus has been active already. He's already been calling disciples. People are recognizing Jesus as someone who's important. People are following him. They're recognizing him as a teacher, as a rabbi. He's growing in popularity. So as one of these men in the city, he's given the opportunity to teach in the Sab on the Sabbath in the synagogue there in Capernaum. If you ever go to Israel, I'm sure this will be guaranteed one of your stops. All right, it's one of the places you can actually go and still see. All right, the, the synagogue is there, although it, the synagogue that's there now was built in the fourth century, but it's built on the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus taught in. You can imagine it's about a room or an area a little bit like maybe a third bigger than this room. So Jesus is in a room full of people, kind of not unlike this, all right, teaching, preaching, doing it with authority. It's important to not forget that teaching and preaching was his main responsibility as he arrived as the Messiah. Before he did anything else, he was a teacher. He did miracles. He did heal people. He showed compassion to the weak. But that was all in the context of his primary responsibility as a teacher. As Mark opens up the gospel, he talks about how he came proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He summarizes the teaching message of Jesus in that verse, 14 through 15 in chapter 1. And then we see in verse 38 in the chapter today, he summarizes his purpose for ministry. He says, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there, for that is why I came out. I arrived here, I came out that I would be one who preaches and teaches. But there were a lot of itinerant preachers. And that was not enough to make Jesus famous. That is not the essence of what it was that made him well known. The fact was that he came and he was teaching and he was preaching in a way that no one had ever seen before as one who had authority, not like the scribes. You see that in verse 22? And, as, and not as the scribes. I want to talk about that for a minute. I want to start with that phrase, not as the scribes. So if you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, the whole Jewish system of teaching in the synagogue was rooted in learning from the scribes who were the local teachers and the local religious leaders. It was, a, it was a, a system of religion and teaching to take the law of God and apply it to everyday life by the 
means of interpretation of the various rabbis, of the various traditions that had been handed down. It was a religion rooted in rules and rabbis. An average service in a synagogue wouldn't be unlike ours. Perhaps it would start off with a, the Shema, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And they would pray, they would read from the law, they'd read from the prophets. Then the, there'd be men in the synagogue who would stand up and then give a teaching on what they had just read. And the scribes would lead these gatherings of people, telling the people, giving them some meanings and applications of the law and the prophets. They were the, the educated voices, the approved voices to interpret the law. But here's the key to understanding what's going on here in Mark. The key to understanding what distinguished Jesus from these people was that these scribes, well, how they taught was a form of teaching rooted in the authority of tradition. It was teaching rooted in the authority of tradition. There was no, like, prophetic authority to what they were saying. It lacked the thus says the Lord kind of authority in their teaching. It was kind of a secondhand, te- secondhand authority. Well, let me tell you about what some others have said. Let's discuss that. Let's see how we can live it. Let's see how we can apply it. It was steeped in tradition that had no authoritative words from God to say. They were the, the scribes were the official keepers of the words of men. You know what? And there's an infinite difference between saying God says and Rabbi Benjamin says. Or God says and St. Augustine says. Or God says and the church says. Or Pastor Rob says. Or tradition tells us. There's an infinite difference between when God speaks and anybody else speaks. And as helpful as any tradition may be, and tradition can be very helpful, Any form of tradition is merely man's words about God rather than God's words to man. And these scribes were not taking the word of God and saying, here's what God says. They were taking man's words, saying, this is what the tradition teaches us. This is what the rabbis have to say. And any kind of teaching that is rooted in that form is weak at best and damning at worst. Turn your, just turn a few chapters in Mark to Mark chapter 7. It's important because Jesus actually is going to address this later more fully. But I want us to actually see how, Mark chapter 7 verse 8, how, how often Jesus had to confront this in his ministry. And how clear he was in talking to them about the corruption that they had in leaning upon their, their traditions. Mark 7, verse 8, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it was written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And then Jesus says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. He says it in so many different ways here. You're rejecting the commandment in order to establish a tradition, your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have been gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have, been, that you have handed down. And many such things you do. You keep doing this. You keep talking about tradition. You keep establishing a tradition that is not from God. And by doing this, you are avoiding the word of God. The scribes 
rested on tradition and set it above the word. And Jesus comes, he enters the synagogue, and he begins to speak in a way that no one had ever heard, they'd never heard someone speak that way. This is what God is saying. He'd, he'd, he'd read from the Torah. He'd say, this is what it means. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He didn't just debate the law or man's traditions. He went down to the very heart of what the word of God was saying. He's saying, I'm telling you what it means. I'm telling you what it says. He's saying, these words, he's living out the reality that these words are the words that give life. And I'm explaining them to you. I'm giving them to you. I'm teaching you. In this way, in Luke, we read the story of his time in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And, all the, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He would open up the word, he would say, this is what it means. Today this is fulfilled. This is speaking about me in that particular case. He got to the heart he pointed to the fulfillment. Psalm 119, 93 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. By your precepts, Lord, you have given me life. The word of God gives life. The words of Jesus are the words of life. And so it is important for us today, and this is always tempting to move away from the centrality and the sufficiency of the Word of God. It is not a small matter that Jesus did not teach like the scribes, who set tradition over Scripture, tradition over the words of God that actually defined His teaching And here's an important application for us. If people ever call you to look to tradition as your authority, there's lots of things to say, but here's a, here's a great starting question. Someone say, hey, well, let's... Someone says, there's an authority above. There's an authority that tells us. There's something else that we need above the Word of God. We, are, we can say something like this. Are you saying that Jesus' words are not enough? Are the precepts of the Lord not enough? Are they insufficient? Because someone's saying, well, what we really need is an authority over the Word of God. We need something more than Jesus' words. Than just say, do we, are Jesus' words not enough? Are Jesus' words insufficient? And if they say, in one form or another, they're not enough. You need something else. Then here's some advice for you. Run the other way. Run the other way. Anyone who says that you need God's words and, and something else to explain them to you, and something else that's going to tell you as an authoritative word above the word of God, whether it's the elders of a church, the traditions, some later prophets, an appeal to tradition as our authority is an appeal to men as our authority. We need the authoritative words that are breathed out by God in Scripture because those words are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, be complete, equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are sufficient to make you complete. They are sufficient to make you ready for everything God will call you to do. There's not something else you need on top of it to make you complete. There's something on top of it to make you ready to do whatever God calls you to do. The scribes were nothing more than false teachers holding on to positions of power. Men passing on corrupted teaching to those from those who had come before them. And by doing this, Jesus says they're nullifying the word of God. They're undermining the word of God. They're distorting the word. 
They did not live or preach the author- with authority because they did not live or preach the authoritative word of God. Jesus steps into that kind of world where everyone's kind of like steeped in decades, centuries of just rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so. And let's, let's just add to, let's explain, let's give the authoritative word over the word. And he comes in and he speaks with authority. I asked my small group last Sunday, um, hopefully you were here last week, it was a huge blessing uh, to hear Dr. Avi speak, and, and I said, so what did you think of, his, of the sermon? I asked my small group, and um, some of the comments were, he had lots of enthusiasm, which he did, lots of passion. Someone told me I should jump more, you know, after hearing that. Um, you know, like lots of passion, and it's true, and God was using, his, using him through his spirit to teach us, encourage us. But when the people heard Jesus, it didn't say, they didn't say, well, he came with lots of enthusiasm, or he was a very effective teacher, or he had a lot of passion, or he was really sincere. The word is authority. He came and he taught with authority. It's a simple word there in verse 22, but he had authority. It was in his hand. It was his. His words were authoritative words. His teachings were authoritatively true. His doctrines that he taught were not given as opinions or as interesting ideas for you to discuss among yourselves and decide if you agree or not. He preached with supernatural power that demanded a response. He preached, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room in it. It was not spoken as a suggestion. It was proclaimed as a truth that said, this is what is true, and this is how we're called, this is how you're called to respond to it. Jesus literally spoke with a thus says the Lord authority. In verse 27, they said, you know what, this is a new teaching with authority. When it says new, don't just think like, well, it's new in terms of like sequence. Like, oh, wow, that's a fresh idea. It wasn't that kind of new. It was new in its quality. Like no one had ever taught this way. That's the kind of teaching that it was. With penetrating power to transform people. I just think, go back to Genesis 1. Let there be light, and there was light. When God speaks, things happen. It's authoritative words. God's word creates and defines reality, and Jesus' words did the same. When he spoke, things happened. Verse 22, when they heard Jesus talk this way, it says they were astonished. That word has to do with, like, wonder. They were shocked. Almost fearful. Think of Isaiah 66. But this is the one to whom I will look, God says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When Jesus spoke, people trembled with astonishment. When the words of Jesus are faithfully taught, preached, or even just read, astonishment is the proper response. His words are astonishing and shocking and jarring and disruptive to our preferences. They're radical words of warning, of comfort, of a high calling. His words are of eternal consequence. Jesus says things like, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We can, we've heard that so many times, you know? But if we could take these, these things that Jesus says and like imagine if he came down and sat next to you and pointed at you and says, unless you turn and become like a child, you're not going to heaven. 
when Jesus looks you in the eye and says that, I think it would cause you to stop for a second. Cause you to pause. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Do you love this life? Do you want everything here? Is this the, is this the world you love the most? If that's the case, you'll die in it. And this will be the best you ever have. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He didn't say, and Rabbi so-and-so says it. He said it. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are shocking things to say to us. They should cause all of us to pause frequently and stop and say, I need to consider Jesus' words. These aren't suggestions for my life. These are authoritative words that define who I am and, and tell me about my eternity. My eternity hinges on these words. Do they keep you up at night with fear or delight? Do they ever reach your heart? It's so tempting for us to want to, to explain them away sometimes, the hard things, you know? There's some things that are all comfort, and we love to embrace those, and it's great. We should fully embrace them and receive them as authoritative words of comfort so I can build my life on them and rest on them and find peace when I'm in turmoil. And we don't like to explain those away. We, 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 you know, we put them in calligraphy on our walls. I've yet to come to an American's house that says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. May we never diminish them, throw water on them, just to like cool down the heat. Rob them of their authority. Lord, Lord may we continue to be shocked by them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody goes but through me. Can you imagine a man saying that? That he's the one. No one in this room, he says, is going to heaven unless you come through me. That is shocking. And if it's true, it should cause everyone who hears it to tremble. Because... There's a thousand other ways that people are telling us to get there. And there's a thousand other ways we might want to get there. And he says, I am the way. No one spoke like that. Jesus was not a tame teacher. He was gentle and lowly, but his words were like a hammer. They crushed, they angered, they frightened. They bring joy, they bring peace, they transform, and they save I pray that among us, they still do that, that we don't grow tired of them, that we stay astonished when we hear them. Jesus is a teacher with authority to effect real change, which leads us to our next point. Jesus is authority over demons. All right, so in the midst of this teaching, this, this powerful teaching in the synagogue, a man in the synagogue cries out, verse 24, what? Have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Like imagine like just the tension in the air that Jesus is teaching. It says they're shocked. So you know they're already deeply engaged, wondering what he's talking about. Maybe they're uncomfortable. And then out of the silence comes this man. He says, what do you have to do with us? And it's not a question of curiosity. Like, hey, what are you doing here? It's a question of terror. What have, what have you to do with us? Then it says, have you come to destroy us? Is this your mission, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you on a mission to destroy us? 
Jesus has already done battle with Satan in the wilderness, and now Jesus comes face to face with one of Satan's minions. I kind of imagine the scene in this room. It's like Jesus and this man with a demon, and he stands up and he starts talking. And if if I could picture like a scene in a movie, it's like everything else kind of gets dim, and there's or it's a play, two spotlights just on this man and Jesus. Nobody else, no one really understands what's going on here. But these two understand what's going on here. The demon speaks with insight from the spiritual world. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. It's not a common Old Testament phrase, but the point is clear. The demon knows Jesus, and it's not because they met somewhere recently on the road from Nazareth to Capernaum. This demon is speaking out of the fact that he knows Jesus from the unseen world, from the unseen realm. They've seen each other before. They know who each other are. The demon knows that the one before him is the Son of God, the Divine One himself. When God speaks in Isaiah 40, verse 25, he's referred to as the Holy One. Proverbs 9, 1 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The Holy One is the Lord. And here the demon calls out to Jesus as the Holy One of God. He is the one and only beloved Son of the Father, the eternal God in the flesh. Remember, the the whole chapter up to this point in Mark has been about the identity of Jesus. And Mark wants us to know that the demons know who Jesus is. I was explained from the beginning of the gospel that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. He's the Lord whose way is being prepared by John the Baptist. And then in this first, the beginning of the ministry, the demons are saying, I know who you are too. No one else may know. Our neighbor might not know. But the demons know who Jesus is. Well, Jesus is not going to have anything to do with a demonic interruption to his teaching and preaching. He has the authority of the, in the room, so he rebukes the demon, says, be silent and come out of him. So shut up and be gone. And what happens? The demon obeys. But not without a fight, Right? The man goes down, he's shrieking, he's convulsing, I'm sure some of you have seen movies with exorcisms in them, and I'm sure some of them are meant just to kind of intentionally be scary and provocative, kind of producing some cheap thrills for a moviegoer. So I don't want us to necessarily think of what movies portray, but I don't want you to sanitize it either. That would have been a scary moment. The whole thing is shocking. I mean, just the teaching was shocking enough. They're amazed at that. In verse 27, when Jesus does this, and they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority, even the demons even the demons obey. I think in that scene, like, what was that room like? You know, picture a room about this size, a little bigger than this. Someone's saying things that you've never heard someone say before, like with, with uh, the kind of authority you've never heard before. A man cries, stands up. What do you have to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? He starts shrieking. Demons come out. Like, what the? I bet there were people who were scared. I bet there was silence. Maybe. Maybe there were people with commotion. They're saying, what's going on? Some are taking their sons and getting out of the building. Some are like, I want to see this. And they're getting as close as they can. Like getting up, like what's happening here? Some people are sitting around, you know, debating among themselves, how does this fit in with our theology? You know, 
Like, let's analyze this. Trying to figure it out. Well, I don't even know. That probably wasn't even a real demon anyway. You know? He's faking it. I mean, like, it was probably just a chaotic moment. That's what they're saying. What is this? What's happening here? Not, the point is, none of them knew what to do. They're witnessing more than just an exorcism in that moment. They're witnessing more than just an itinerant preacher who came in and who seems to be different than the other rabbis and scribes. They're witnessing the kingdom of God breaking into their synagogue. They're seeing what happens when the long-awaited son of David and son of God starts exercising his power and his authority in this world. Jesus enters their synagogue and starts doing things that the king is going to do when he's building his kingdom. He's going to start saying what's true. He's going to start casting out demons. He's going to start exercising his authority with, a, with power. When he commands, the unclean spirits obey, it says in verse 27. That is authority. It doesn't just happen once. In verse 34, it says, he cast out many demons in the city. These demons knew Jesus, and they had to obey him, for he was the Holy One of God. And not only that, he tells them not to speak. And we're going to get to, get to that in a moment. But he, Jesus had the authority to permanently shut up and dominate the demonic world. Number three, Jesus' authority to heal the sick and unclean. To heal the sick and the unclean. So, Mark wants us to know that exorcisms were a regular part of his ministry, particularly in Capernaum at this time. In verse 29, all who were sick and demon-possessed were brought to him, and the whole city was at the door. Remember, he's famous. They, they've heard of him, and they've begun to see what he can do. So they're all gathering around. Mark highlights two healings in this passage. Peter's mother-in-law is healed from a fever. Immediately after the Sabbath service, Jesus goes to her home, which is just a very brief walk away. Again, if you go to Capernaum today, you'll see where they believe his house was with an odd-looking structure above it, all right, to remember the spot. Um, and they go there, and Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up, and she begins to serve. I make that point just because last week... Um, Dr. Avi explained, he made a point out of the fact that he had someone else bring blind Bartimaeus to him. Sometimes Jesus would do that. Hey, bring the one who is sick to me. But sometimes Jesus himself goes and touches. And in this case, he reaches out and grabs her by the hand and heals her. But I want to focus on the healing at the end, verses 40 through 45, the healing of this leprous man. Everyone, no one can ignore Jesus, even from the beginning. This is the beginning of his ministry. And people want to be able, there are those who are opposed to him, as we'll see soon, as we go through the gospel, where there are those who just want to touch him. They want to touch from him. In verse 40, this man came to Jesus There's, there's so much going on in this story. Here's a man who goes, he goes, I want to be near him. I want you to fall down on my knees before him. But the law said he should have been saying unclean, unclean, and running from him. He should have been getting out of Jesus' way. He should have been finding a way not to be near Jesus. But instead, he's like, I want to get as close as I can to him. I want him to touch me. So just the fact that he's going after Jesus to get close is shocking in and of itself. Even offensive. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. It's interesting that he says it that way. If you will, you can make me clean. It's not just that this man is sick. It's that he's unclean. He didn't just have a fever. He had leprosy. And that made him an outcast in every possible way 
to think about it in terms of culturally. What it means to be an outsider, what it meant to be, you were separated from everyone. Not only were you dealing with a physical uh, malady, you're also dealing with a social separation. The law says in Leviticus 13, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear worn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I mean, it's almost like walking around like a dead man. Wear torn clothes. Cover up your mouth. Let your hair go. And stay outside. Stay away from everybody. And if anyone gets near, yell something that makes them run away. Imagine, I mean, imagine what it's like to have that kind of, just what it's like to have a sickness that is just sickness. <laughs> what it's like to have a sickness or a disability. That's hard enough. Now imagine if no one wanted to talk to you after you did. And you are that desperate to be made well or in this case to be made clean if this man got too close to someone else he would contaminate them lepers could not and should not even approach anyone they weren't to engage in the holy festivals they couldn't go into the holy places but now he is approaching and kneeling before who the holy one of god he's walking right up to holiness right up to the one that he should be farthest from. At least that's what everyone would say. You should be farthest away from that which is holy, for you are unclean. Then Jesus does what's unthinkable. He reaches out and he touches him. That was astonishing. That was shocking. No one would do it. No one would dare do that. According to the law, Jesus is now unclean. He just touched him. Now he's going to be unclean. But that's not what happens. Instead of the unclean man tainting the holy one, the holy one cleanses the unclean one. It's impossible. It's not just this man gets healed. This man comes along and starts touching unclean things and not being tainted by them. That's a miracle. That's astonishing. That's an authority in the room. Because I can do this. Someone greater than the law is here in Jesus. Under the law, leprosy had to be cured before it could be declared clean, but not with Jesus. He does both in an instant. He has the authority to make the sick whole and make the defiled clean. He healed. The healed man was to go to the priest under the system of the law to be declared clean. Make sure that you show this is certified and verifiable. That Jesus makes the defiled clean. He makes the sick well. He frees the demon-possessed. That is what happens when the king enters the world. Wherever the king is exercising his power, wherever he is showing his control, he's doing things like that. He's freeing people. He's cleansing people. He's making the sick well. If you are defiled and unclean this morning, you can come to Jesus and he won't be tainted by you. It sounds like a strange thing to say, but I have met people who say, I am too sinful, too much Defilement has happened in my life. Some people, because of the defilement they have done, and I've had people tell me because of the defilement done to them, they do not feel worthy. They feel unclean. 
And apart from Jesus, we are unclean. But if when he touches us, we can be made clean. We can be forgiven. We will be forgiven. He's a fountain of living water. Like it keeps coming out and it's fresh and it's clean and it's clear and it washes the unclean. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. When he says clean, it's the same word for ceremonially clean. I'm going to make you clean. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Guiltiness under the law. Those who are guilty under the law can be forgiven in Christ, can be cleansed in Christ, can be washed clean. That's the promise of the gospel that Jesus touches sinners and washes them white as snow, and he does it through his own death and resurrection. Don't leave today without being cleansed. Finally, Jesus' authority over his own identity. I'm just going to touch briefly on this. Um, if you ever take a class in, on the Gospels in school or in college, they're going to talk about this a lot. The, the secret. Jesus doesn't want anyone to talk about it. The messianic secret, they call it. He didn't want people to say who he was. He tells the demon to be silent. He avoids the crowds in verse 38. He tells the leprous man, don't tell anybody. That's a strange thing, Right? Why is Jesus telling people and demons not to tell who he is? To be quiet about what he's, what he's doing. I think it, it's again a demonstration of his authority. Jesus commands complete authority over his message and the revelation of his identity and his mission. He's not going to allow a demon to declare what he has come to make known. That is his prerogative. He commands men to keep quiet about his work. Again, it's counterintuitive, but it demonstrates his authority. He's the king in charge of every situation. No man, no demon is going to get in the way of Jesus' message. I think we could see this and understand this in a, in a way. I, the king, the queen of England. It's hard to say the king. I'm used to saying the queen, all right? You know, is she ever in a hurry? No. Why? Because everybody waits for her. Like, she, she's never running. She's never waiting. She just walks in the room, and now it's the time. Well, how do we know it's time to start? Because she just walked in the room. Like, she sets the pace. There could be 10,000 people outside the castle waiting for her, and they all understand the fact that they just have to wait. And she's not late. When she arrives, it's on time. Because she's the authority, and they're not. And we understand that, like, in, the, you know, like in, our, in the human terms, we kind of understand that reality with the, with the king and the queen and the subjects. That they have the absolute authority to say and do what they want, when they want, how they want. And they can say, I don't want anyone else to set, set the pace for me. If I want to talk slow, I'm going to talk slow. If I want to be done right now, I want to be done. If I want you to be quiet, I want you to be quiet. Jesus sets on the scene and infinitely more authoritatively says, I am going to set the agenda for what I do. And you're not going to say it. You're not going to, you're not going to confuse what I'm trying to say. I'm not going to let you dictate how this is done. I'm going to do this the way that I want it done. I'm going to communicate this the way I want to communicate it, and no one else is going to talk. It's just me. That's the kind of authority that Jesus had as he began his ministry and implemented his ministry. He is the only authority. So, the early ministry of Jesus was known. He was famous for his authority. When people thought of Jesus, they were shocked. They were astonished. If somebody came and spent time with us at Countryside, what is he famous for here? 
If, Jesus, if, if someone came here and spent time around us, but they say, when I spend time at Countryside, it seems like these people think Jesus is what? I suggest to you that I hope that they would say, Jesus is their authority. I mean, he, he's a lot of things. He's our Savior. There's a lot of things he is also. But I'll tell you, I hope that he is seen as our authority. I hope he is our authority. I hope he is the authority of your family. Like, is Jesus the authority of your family? That he wields absolute control? That you surrender that to him? You give it to him? I want you, Jesus, to be the authoritative, the authority over how I parent, how I act as a wife, how I live as a kid in my house, kids. Like, Jesus is your authority. He's above your parents. And you obey your parents because he's the authority in your house. It's really practical. Could the guys at work tell this past week that Jesus is your authority? Or parents, could your, could your kids tell this week by watching you, you know what, I think my mom's following Jesus this week. I can tell. Or I think dad, I think dad listens to Jesus more than he listens to football. Like, I'm pretty sure of it. Like, I can see it. Like, it should be obvious. If Jesus is your authority, I promise you, it's not going to look like the world. It's going to look different. And you're going to be able to, you're going you're to hear Jesus' words, and they're still going to be like, oh, man, that's so good. I want to live that way. I want to walk that way. I want to talk that way. Could your roommate tell if Jesus was your authority and not your girlfriend? Again, it's, it's not that mysterious. People can tell. And probably most importantly, we can tell in our own hearts who we're following. I pray that Jesus is famous here for his authority over this place and over our lives. Again, I want him to be known as many things, but may it never be less than that. May we receive Jesus as he truly is, the rightful authority over us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so clear. You sent your son to be so clear to us about who he is. And I ask for our hearts to be tender enough to continue to be humbled and tremble at your word, that we would see Jesus and we would be, we would still be moved, that we'd be moved to the point of action, that we'd be moved to the point of praise, that we'd be moved to the point of prayer, to praise, to thank, to ask, to rest our confidence in, Lord, may you do that work more and more every single day here among us. In Jesus' name, amen.